You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Hi, I'm Peter Delapena, and you're joining the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. And on the podcast, we have started a new series on the podcast looking at associate nations within cricket and how they are developing the game in their country. Many of us cricket fans know so much about the established cricketing countries and not enough on the associate nations who play cricket. So it would be nice to learn more about those associate countries and via the podcast, people can learn more as well. For today's Associate Cricket Series episode, we are discussing all things associate and USA cricket. Joining me to discuss and talk all things associate and USA cricket is Peter De La Pena. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Jack, for having me. Pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on, Peter, and um, it's great to have you here, the expert on associate and U.S. cricket, and you've been covering the game for many years, and it's it's good to have you on to chat about associate cricket and U.S. cricket, uh, given that it's been heavily talked about of late in the cricketing world. But before we do that, Peter, as I do with all my guests that I've interviewed on the podcast, I'd like to take them back to when they first got into cricket. And it's been very fascinating listening to people's memories on how they got started into cricket. And um, it's just fascinating listening to how people got into the game. And everyone finds a different path into the game. So, Peter, let's go back to the very beginning, growing, uh, well, uh, the beginning of your cricket journey, I should say. Uh, What were your earliest memories of watching, playing and even going to the cricket? Well, I describe it almost in a sense of back to the future style terms of there was a split in the space time continuum in uh, July 22nd, 2005. And basically, I I grew up in New Jersey, born and raised in New Jersey, well, technically born in New York, raised in New Jersey, Um, and um, was a big sports fan my whole life. I was a family... um, of of five uh two older brothers and and sports was a big thing growing up and especially all the typical american sports we were new york giants season ticket holders for 48 years my dad had them going back to when the giants were in yankee stadium and then when they went into the elbow before giant stadium was built and so growing up we were in section 123 row 30 in uh, the corner of of the uh, home team end zone on the east side of the stadium and uh that was a, a a great kind of part of growing up and you know tailgating and, and all the stuff that i associate with with going to nfl games anyway and um <clears throat> but it wasn't just nfl you know we were huge uh ice hockey fans growing up ice hockey was probably my favorite sport growing up definitely to play uh, i don't really follow it much anymore almost a, out of a sense of uh, withdrawal it, it uh, once i stopped playing it was hard to watch um but uh growing up in new jersey i was a huge new jersey devils fan and and right at the time when they won three stanley cups in 1995 2000 2003 that was kind of their heyday yeah. and, um so a lot of New Jersey Devils players were my heroes growing up. One of my favorite memories as a kid was when the Stanley Cup was brought uh, to the Meadowlands in New Jersey, and, and we waited for a couple hours just so we could take a picture with the Stanley Cup and touch the Stanley Cup. That was a huge yeah. deal. And, um, 
you know, baseball, New York Mets. So my dad was a Yankees fan, but me and my brothers grew up Mets fans for some inexplicable reason because the Yankees were were <laughs> in the middle of their late 90s dynasty when I was growing up in New Jersey, and uh, the Mets still haven't won a World Series since 1986. So uh, I don't know how that happened, but uh, we we would go to Mets games regularly, taking the subway in, taking, uh, we would take a New Jersey transit bus in and then take the subway from Times Square out to the, the seven train out to Shea Stadium and, and now City Fields. Um, all these things were part of growing up and you know, we, we played whatever sport there was in the season. So in the, uh, in the winter, we would play football outside, uh, American football. And in the spring, we would play baseball. Literally baseball was a big part of growing up. And, um, you know, we would play pond hockey in the winter. We had a pond near us that froze over. We would play pond hockey, and then we, yeah. we would play hockey in the rinks. We would get up at 4 a.m. to go for a 5.15 practice time in uh, Morristown at Menon Arena, um, which was the big ice rink kind of in the community. And um, uh, tennis in the summer, we would play tennis. You know, anything, anything, you know, what the kids in the neighborhood were doing and what other kids in our peer group were doing, Whatever that season was, that's that's what we did. That was part of growing up. And I had no concept of cricket in yeah. New Jersey. And uh, it, it wasn't until <clears throat> going to college, I worked in the athletic department at, at Creighton University. I went to Creighton, which is in Omaha, Nebraska. And they're most well-known for their soccer team and for their men's basketball team. Uh, the men's basketball yeah. team was consistently ranked in the top 25, and they've had Quite a few players go on to the NBA um, most recently in the last 20 years or so. The two players in particular, Kyle Korver, who had a very lengthy NBA career, and um, Doug McDermott, who was National Player of the Year at Creighton, who was drafted by the Bulls, and he's bounced around the league since then. But um, <clears throat> Anthony Tolliver was in my class. Anthony Tolliver was in my freshman seminar class. Uh, and he, he almost – we didn't think he would he would last at Creighton. Um and then he's uh, his junior year, he went to see his sports psychologist. I remember in the athletic department, that was a big thing because he was almost on the verge of losing his scholarship. And uh, the, the coach at the time, Dana Altman, who's now with Oregon, but who was a longtime creating head coach, kind of the, the inside world was he didn't want him around anymore. He was trying to find an excuse to get Anthony to, to transfer. And then Anthony all of a sudden went from being one of the worst players on the team to his junior year. He was incredible. And he, so last two years did well enough to to get a, a free agent contract, I believe. I don't think he was drafted, um, but uh, he's he, he's been in the NBA for a, about a decade, and he actually met his wife in our in our freshman seminar class. His his wife Jessica. Um, <laughs> I remember when they met. And it's kind of interesting uh, that um, that that's where he met his future wife. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I worked in the athletic department. I worked men's basketball games. I worked men's soccer games, uh, baseball, softball, volleyball. I did everything. And I always thought I was going to be going into a career in, in sports broadcasting, yep. doing football or or baseball or basketball or something along those lines. And I, I on campus, I worked in, in the athletic department, like I said, in, um, in various capacities. But um, I after a few years of uh, doing various things in sports marketing and sports information. I, I got opportunities to do uh, broadcasting on the campus radio and campus uh, streaming service. So I did over 200 games in terms of creating 
baseball and softball primarily, but I also did a lot of Creighton uh, soccer, men's, women's soccer games, and did a few basketball games and a few volleyball games uh, as well. But um, so I always thought I would it would be doing one of those things. And my junior year, uh, I decided to spend a semester abroad in Australia. Now, now this is where the cricket part comes in, Jack. Uh, <laughs> so finally, I, I decided to do a semester abroad, and I wanted to go someplace where I could experience another sports culture just to see how sports were done in a different part of the world, but also do it in yeah. an English speaking country. Cause I didn't want to have that hurdle. Um, and Australia fascinated me for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, when I remember the new year's Eve celebrations at the millennium, the one in, in Sydney Harbor blew my mind seeing all these uh, fireworks go off in Sydney Harbor when, uh, you know, the, the millennium countdown came around. And then later that year, the Sydney Olympics in 2000, I always watched the Olympics and, and seeing how that was covered. I, I just thought, wow, this is a place I really want to go to one day because this looks awesome. And and all these people look like they're just having a great time and um, yeah. just looks like an incredible community in, in Sydney. And so I picked Sydney really thinking that I would get sucked into Aussie rules and huh. rugby and I had no concept really of cricket. I thought I knew cricket existed and I thought uh, maybe I'll get to see a cricket match while I'm there, but it wasn't at the top of my list of priorities of things to do. The, the one thing that I had locked in was going to the Melbourne cup. I want to go to the Melbourne cup. That was one, I, I was always a big horse racing fan growing up. Um, uh, one of my favorite experiences in life was going to the Belmont Stakes in 2004 with my brother uh, when Smarty Jones was trying to go win the Triple Crown. Smarty Jones lost to Birdstone that day, but but 100,000 people at Belmont Park was incredible. And um, just the atmosphere that I, I love horse racing and I've been to a lot of racetracks around the U.S. And I thought going to the Melbourne Cup would be pretty cool. And so I uh, definitely wanted to do that. And that wound up being the year for the Aussie fans on your podcast that was the year that Maccabi Diva won for the third time so I got to witness history uh at that race um and I just went there for the whole week uh for the Melbourne Cup uh racing carnival but um cricket was really an afterthought and it wasn't until I got off the plane I went I went for the uh July to November semester on the the Australian academic calendar and uh I got off the plane July 22nd, 2005, the day that changed my life forever. Get off the plane, and um, we were on our way to Cannes for our student orientation before we went to Macquarie. I was supposed to study Macquarie, but our program took us to Cannes. They wanted to take us to the Great Barrier Reef to get us into our Aussie immersion. And uh, we were there for a week, and I get off the plane in, in Brisbane on the way to Cairns, and the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald of the newsstand says, bloody hell, these palms mean business. And there's a <laughs> picture of Ricky Ponting cut from the Steve Harmison bouncer on the opening day yeah. of play at Lords, and the first Ashes test in 2005. It, and I read the summary. It was written by Chloe Saltow, who at the time was just a reporter, and now I believe she's the chief sports editor at the uh, – age and the heralds um and uh i read chloe Southall's report and it might as well have been written in chinese didn't understand a single thing that she wrote but uh we got to our accommodation that night in Cairns, and 
all over the televisions in the accommodation. It was SBS showing the ashes. And I thought, yeah. all right, if I'm going to be here for the next six months and I want to try and fit in and not make a fool out of myself, I should probably try and get <laughs> to learn what it is that they're yeah. showing on TV right now. And and there were certain things that you could pick up without needing help or assistance. You know, yeah. if, if Shane Warren took a wicket and he went out of his mind celebrating um, and you saw on the scoreboard, you know, three changed to four, four changed to five. Yeah. Obviously, somebody just got out. OK, yeah. um, if the, if the ball hits the stumps and you see the scoreboard, add one. All right. Obviously, somebody just yeah. got out. Um, if somebody hits the ball in the air and they catch it, yeah, that's that's out. Uh, I could figure that out. You know, if, if the ball doesn't hit the ground before it's caught, that's out. OK, um, if if somebody hits the ball and it goes to the rope, you see four runs added to the scoreboard. Okay. That doesn't take a genius. Um, yeah. But some of the more nuanced things were a bit complicated. So, so something that if you don't grow up with cricket, you, you, as somebody growing up with cricket, you take for granted a lot of things. If you don't grow up with it, watching on TV is a very um, jarring experience in terms of, Simple things. So, and I think about this in reverse where I grew up with American football. You grew up seeing things on the playground and seeing games in person. If you're watching American football on TV, there is so much action that happens off camera. And if you don't grow up with it, it can be very hard to conceptualize if, if you're not used to it. And there's many elements of that with cricket. So, for example, you know, I say, you know, when they hit four and it goes to the boundary, that's obvious. Well, if they take a single or a two... And the, the ball comes off the bat and the camera tracks the ball and they don't show the runners running between the wickets. Yeah. Two runs get added to the scoreboard. Wait a second. How the hell do they score two runs? Where, you know, where do yeah. they run? You know, um, yeah. the concept of bowlers bowling from different ends, alternating overs. Okay. So on yeah. screen, the graphic might say bowling from the pavilion end and bowling from the media box end or whatever. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything to me because in modern cricket, it didn't used to be this way, but in modern televised cricket, the camera is always behind the bowler's arm. 50, 60 years ago, you only had one camera where the bowler would be, the, the camera would be behind the bowler at one end and then the opposite end, the camera would be behind the wicket keeper. So you always yeah. knew it was obvious when they changed ends. Yeah. Since the 70s and 80s, since World Series cricket, essentially, with Kerry Packer and all the innovations he had, one of them was putting a camera at both ends. Um, so, you know, you, you see, all right, now bowling from this end to that end, that doesn't mean anything to me because the camera's always behind the the, yeah. the bowler. What do you mean they're switching ends? Um, and so it wasn't until I actually went to my first match in person, which was would have been the super test um, yeah, yeah. In, in Sydney when Australia took on the world just after the Ashes. Yeah. Um, I had this epiphany. At the start of the second <laughs> over play, all of a sudden, at the second over, the first over ends, the second over is about to begin. I see everybody switch ends, and I thought, yeah. oh, my God. Now it <laughs> makes sense, all this stuff about bowling from one end or bowling from the other end. And now I get yeah. why they're talking about, oh, why a left-hander and a short boundary or a right-hander on a short boundary, depending yeah. on the end they're, they're hitting from. And, oh, Jesus, like, why didn't they ever show this stuff before? And um, yeah. seeing how close or how far – the wicket keeper and the slips are because hmm. um, again, on TV, the barrel, the lens, 
makes it look like they're very close to the stumps, yeah. especially for a pace bowler. Um, when you're there in person, you see Adam Gilchrist and Ricky Ponting and Matthew Hayden and Shane Warren in the slips. They're basically on the 30-yard circle. Uh, they're 30 yards back from the stumps. Like, uh, it's, that's yeah. quite deep. I didn't realize that. And then even for when Shane Warren was bowling um, and he had Matthew Hayden at slip, Again, on TV, it looks like Matthew Hayden is like maybe five feet away from the stumps and, yeah. and Jason to Adam Gilchrist. No, Matthew Hayden is like eight, ten yards deep behind the stumps. Um, so all those subtle little things um, were incredibly fascinating to me going to watch a match in person. But anyway, get back and wrap up this, this story about how I got into it. Um, so I was watching the first test in Cairns and all these things were happening. Yeah. It kind of pieced together a little bit, but... The broader concepts that I'm talking about now it didn't click until we get back to Sydney and the night before the second test begins, um, there was like a party in our, our village, Macquarie University Village. Um, and this kid, Daniel, was the only time I ever met him in my life. It was a local Aussie kid and he just kind of stumbled into our house looking for beer. And um, again, for context, in our house, it was all Americans. So I went to Australia yeah. looking to like meet Australians, hang out with Australian people, meet immerse in Australian culture. And on my housing form, <laughs> it asked, do you want to live with international students or local students? And in my head, I didn't think about this before I checked it off. I'm, th you know, coming yeah. from America, you think international students, that means everybody but Americans. Well, when you're in Australia, you're an international student. And I, yeah. I wish I'd thought about that more clearly because I checked off international students and then I got to Sydney and I realized I'm living with all Americans. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I've been with Americans all my life. The whole point of coming here was to meet other people, not people I've, <laughs> I've been around forever. So I was really frustrated about that. And um, finally, Daniel walks in. I'm like, oh, thank God. It's an Aussie. Somebody I can ask about cricket, all this stuff I've been trying to read in the articles and at the end, since the end of the first test and everything I don't understand. And poor Daniel uh, Hogue, he... He was probably just looking for some beer. And then all of a sudden, this American is asking him all these ridiculous questions about cricket, chewing his ear off for an hour and a half. Uh, but he was very patient with me. You know, I asked him, you know, what's the difference between a wicket, a wicket, and a wicket? You know, you've got the same word that means yeah. several different things. Um, what's yeah. the difference between seam and swing and spin bowling and leg spin and yeah. off spin? And, um, you know, why would you arrange a batting order a certain way? I didn't understand why everybody was talking about Adam Gilchrist so much as somebody who's this devastating player, you know, one of the top batsmen in the world at the time, averaging over 50. He opens in one-day cricket. So if mm. he opens in one-day cricket, why the hell is he batting at number seven in test cricket? I didn't understand that. Um, yeah. You know, things that would unfold later in the series. So like Shane Warren at Old Trafford in the third test, he scored 90 in his first innings. And... You know, a lot of the Aussie batters were struggling. And I'm thinking to myself, well, Shane Warren, he's scoring some runs this series. Why the hell is he batting at number eight? Why don't they promote him up to number four? Because, uh, you know, Simon Caddish and Damian Martin, they're really struggling. You know, well, why isn't Warren that high? This doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> um, you know, well, if Shane Warren is so awesome, why are they waiting until the 25th or the 30th over to bowl him for the first time? This doesn't make any sense. If he's your best bowler, why isn't he opening with a new ball, you know, you know, when Glenn McGraw went down in the opening morning at Edgbiston, oh, uh, why didn't they just allow Warney to open the bowling? You know, what's <laughs> well, you, know, you can deal without Glenn McGraw. Well, what you know, yeah. why did they wait until England were 90 for none or whatever it was? And Triscothic and Strauss had gotten off to this incredible story. Why did they wait that long until 
they decided to bring on Shane Warren. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, so, you know, all these things happen. And um, he was very patient with me. And, yeah, so I, I, I watched the first night of of play in Australia, anyway, of the opening morning of the, the second test at Edgbaston. Yeah. And everything just starts clicking for me. It makes so much more sense now that Daniel's explained all the terminology and a lot of the strategic points to me. And um, that just happens to be one of the greatest tests of all time. England wins by two runs. And um, I was hooked. And I just uh, never looked back. And the rest of the series was incredible. Obviously, my my favorite test was that third test at, at Old Trafford. I just um, mm. I remember staying up till 3 a.m. in Sydney. Um, more might have been 3.34 a.m., um, you know, Seeing Brett Lee and um, Glenn McGraw and uh, Michael Kasperich. Uh, um, was it Michael Kasperich? I can't remember. No, it was uh, McGraw and, and Lee holding on for the uh, for the draw. The last twenty four balls after Ricky Ponting got out. So, um, and I remember being like so 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 pumped, and I knew kind of I was mentally um, disturbed by the fact that I was actively cheering for a draw. This was so completely un-American uh, that I was yeah. like so pumped and so stoked for a draw. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? This is not something yeah. Americans are supposed to do. Um, yeah. But uh, that, that just showed how much cricket had warped my mind, uh, never to be uh, undone. Yeah, oh, that's, that's fantastic, Peter. It's a wonderful story that you told there about how you got into this game. And funny enough, it was in Australia, which is, you know, cricket's the national sport. Yeah, no, and and um, yeah. after once the Ashes ended, I uh, I went straight online at after the conclusion of the fifth test and bought tickets to every day of the Super Test that was going to be in October, and then I yep. went online and I was I was not supposed to go home. I was uh, until uh, January tenth, so yep. I, most kids once the semester ended in. November, they all wanted to go home and spend Christmas with their families. I thought I may never get to come to Australia again. I wanted to, I wanted to spend Christmas, uh, sorry, New Year's Eve in Sydney Harbor. So again, the two things I wanted to do, I wanted to go to the Melbourne Cup and spend New Year's Eve in Sydney Harbor. It was the only two things I had pre-planned. And um, when I had asked for my plane tickets to be booked by the study abroad um, coordinator, I asked him, you know, can I come back January second or third? And they said the earliest ticket they could buy that was cost effective was January 10th if I wanted yeah. to stay for New Year's Eve. So um, that wound up working out for me because, yeah, I bought tickets to the all the, every day of the Super Test. And then I bought tickets to all all five days of the New Year's Test, which is against South Africa that year. And yep. it was Ricky, Ricky Ponting's 100th test. He scored a century yep. in eight Jennings. And they chased, I think it was 281 or 278, whatever it was. Yep. On the last day, Graham Smith made a generous early declaration, and then it was just a road chasing that. But I went to all five days of that, and the thing I remember most about um, going to that, um, I bought tickets as soon as the Ashes test ended because I wanted to go, and it was an incredible experience. The thing I remember most about watching all five days of that test in person is that my ass was completely sore <laughs> by day four. And um, I thought, Jesus, God, like, I don't know how people have been doing this their entire lives, sitting, sitting yeah. still and sitting in a hard chair back seat for five days. It's killing my body. And I don't know <laughs> how much longer I can do this. But uh, so it was a test of endurance, not just for the players out in the field. Test great. It's a test for the fans having to yeah. sit in those seats for five days. But it was incredible. And, and um, um, 
yeah, I just I just couldn't get enough of it. And and just kind of to wrap up that immersion experience on the plane home, I had a Qantas flight going back from Sydney to Los Angeles and then Los Angeles to uh, Newark, New Jersey. Again, I had never seen cricket in America up to this point in my life. I didn't know if it existed. I, I you know, towards the end, I was doing some Google searches. I thought there may be some cricket clubs in, in Nebraska and Omaha where Creighton is, but it wasn't a guarantee. And more than that, I had no idea if I was going to be able to have access to watch cricket. So I thought, ooh, I, I really need to burn this in my memory so that I never forget this experience. So on the flight back, the Qantas flight back, they had this SBS Ashes kind of uh, documentary retrospective, whatever, where they kind of recapped all five tests and had some commentary. So it was Simon Hill was the host, Dean Jones and Greg Matthews were the two studio um, analysts. And it was like an hour and 40 minutes. So they spent 20 minutes on each test. And so I watched that SBS Ashes summary two-hour thing, hour and 40-minute thing. I watched it seven times straight on the flight. Once it ended, I would just loop it back again on the 14-hour flight because I thought, I have to just remember this stuff. I have to burn it in or else I might never be able to see it again. Uh, And so the person who was sitting next to me on the flight probably thought I was, again, a psychopath. (laughs) <laughs> something mentally wrong with this person that uh, why are they watching the same thing seven times in a row um and uh fortunately once i got back to the us i discovered there is access in pre- pretty incredible access to, to cricket arguably better than there is in australia um and, yeah. and england and a lot of other places um and access to to plenty of other things to do with cricket too so um but yeah, yeah i remember in the early days when i came back um, you know, I, uh, the, the one day series, the tri series, whatever it was the VB series, um, yeah. with Sri Lanka, Sri Lankan, I think who Sri Lankan, South Africa, or Sri Lankan, the West Indies, West Indies and South Africa were the two testings that toured. Um, but the VB series that year, yeah, it was Sri Lankan and one of the two. Um, and I, I remember coming back to my my house that I was living with uh, three other guys just off campus at Creighton. And um, I would have the uh, ABC Australia commentary on the radio coming through my laptop with Jim Maxwell and, and uh, the yeah. rest of the crew. And, you know, it's like, you know, the matches would start at 9 p.m. in Omaha and, and go until 3, 4 a.m. And like, what the hell is this guy listening to, you know, <laughs> 3 a.m. in Nebraska? Why the hell does he have this ridiculous cricket uh-huh. problem? yeah oh that's that's fantastic peter um i think everyone can relate to that you know watching games over and over again i do that yeah you know that nostalgia sort of thing but for you it was more of a learning sort of tool you know otherwise it would escape your mind and then quickly you would forget again yeah to me i felt like it was i had missed out on 20 years of experiences that i needed to catch up on to me it was it was just a massive game of catch-up all these other people had been watching cricket, following cricket their entire lives. And I, I had missed out on this wonderful sport. And I I just felt like, geez, I, I've got to really speed up my education here to just catch up to all the things I, I've missed and other people take for granted that they can just recall. So, um, again, one of my more sad or pathetic uh, experiences or, or awesome experiences, depending on what side of the fence you're on. My spring break, I went to New Zealand. Um, so it was mid-October, late September, early, uh, mid-October. And I went, um, to New Zealand 
and I was in Auckland for a week, and then I went around the South Island for a week, Queenstown, and um, worked my way back up all the way up to Christchurch, and and took a ferry over to Wellington. But um, that first week in Auckland, it rained basically every day, and so um, I think the first or second day when it was like the only time it was clear, I went to go to uh, Mount Rangitoto, the volcano that's kind of there in Auckland, and then I came back. And basically the rest of the week, I went into, I can't remember what bookstore it was, if it was a Borders or if it was something else, a, a, a Dimmix. I don't know if they have those in New Zealand. Um, but um, I just went into every bookstore that was open. And I would I'd spend like majority of my spring break when it was raining outside. I just went into these bookstores and picked off any cricket book off the shelf. And as a cheapskate student, I just tried to sit there for six or seven hours and read the books without having to pay for them. And um, so, you know, like one, of, you know, Steve Waugh's autobiography was just released at that point in time, which was like 900 pages or something ridiculous like that. And, um, you know, try, trying to read through that without having to pay for it. And um, uh, I went into all these used bookstores. There's some amazing used bookstores in, in and around Sydney and in Auckland and definitely in Christchurch too, where you could get used cricket books. And, you know, you can't, you can't go into a used bookstore in the U S Jack and buy used cricket books. Unfortunately, uh, something you can only do there. So, uh, you know, I just wanted to stockpile books, um, speed of my education. So I, I, I bought, um, Imran Khan's autobiography and Viv Richards's autobiography and, uh, Richard Hadley's autobiography. And, um Shane Warren's autobiography one of several he went up writing but the one the one that was very uh, cleverly titled my autobiography by Shane Warren uh <laughs> I read that one and um you know uh what I'm trying to think I, you know there were there were a lot of books that um you know whatever Ian Botham I think his autobiography can't remember. Um, Andrew Flintoff had a new book out after he was a hero during the ashes that year in 2005. Yeah. And, and so he was capitalizing that fame and he, he wrote a book. I bought that and read that. Um, you know, there, there were just all, any cricket book that I could access and find that would help educate me in any way, no matter how cleverly or how poorly these books were written just the fact that they were cricket books was like oh i have to have this and i have to read this to find out what happened in this guy's career because he was a big deal um and and again it was um just kind kind of trying to access these elements of history that you know you, you grow up Grow up in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Oh, you know, you take for granted. Oh, of course, I know who Imran Khan is. Of course, you know, he won the 92 World Cup. Um, of course, you know who Richard Hadley is and Viv Richards and this and that. Well, I didn't know who any of these people were and I wanted to find out. So I was just desperate to get my hands on anything that could help educate me. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You wanted to learn more and embrace yourself with the history, uh, which I'm passionate about as well the history of the game, which is a long, rich history. and you wanted to learn more about that. Has that made you appreciate the game even more in your line of work, being a cricket journalist covering cricket? Has that made you appreciate the game more? Well, especially from the American standpoint, 100%, because there's 
the point of pride that American and Canada had the first ever match in 1844. And you grow up in America reading all about the history of the American sports and, and where those sports came to be and, and begin, you know, and, and um, you know, the first football game, American football, Princeton Rutgers uh, in New Jersey. And, um, you know, the, the, the first, um, the origins of, of baseball and major league baseball and, um, you know, the early, you know, world series. And, you know, one of the things that, um, at least when I was growing up, I don't know if it's, it's still like this to this day, but one of the most fascinating things growing up for me was reading about the 1919 world series with the black Sox and eight men out. And, um, which is especially educational when, when you kind of put it into the context of the match fixing sagas that have um, developed over, over the years in cricket um, and how it compares to what happened with the Black Sox and she was Joe Jackson. Um, and you look at, you know, ice hockey again, uh, growing up as a huge ice hockey fan, reading about and studying ice hockey and the origins of ice hockey and, um, you know, the original six is something that ice hockey fans, or at least NHL fans, grow up with and take for granted, um, referencing the original six and and um, just pictures and images of, of, in particular, you know, the goaltenders and how the equipment has evolved over the years and the historic history around that where, you know, goalies didn't used to wear helmets. <laughs> and the, the technique of you know, being a goaltender in ice hockey, how that's changed with the evolution of technology and, and how, um, you know, somebody like Ken Dryden was really one of the first goalies to consistently wear a helmet um, and had a legendary career with the Montreal Canadiens as a goalie. And, um, you know, you, you think of then everybody else, uh, you know, wearing helmets or not wearing helmets and, you know, the, the Gordy Howe's of the world and um, how long they played and, um, you know, learning what a Gordy Howe hat trick was, you know, a goal assist in a fight in hockey uh, and uh, all that stuff. And, you know, thinking about, you know, when I was growing up, it was, it was kind of a, a noteworthy thing that Craig McTavish was the last player who didn't wear a helmet it was a rule that was grandfathered in when they put the helmet rule in place. It was guys who had started their careers were not obligated to wear a helmet. Everybody who career, whose career began after the rule was in place had to wear a helmet. But so you'd see this oddity, Craig McTavish skating around the ice without a helmet on. He's the only guy on the ice without a helmet on is because his career started before it was made mandatory. So he just, instead of, saying for safety reasons oh well i'm gonna wear a helmet now because i don't i don't want to have a head injury he's like no i've played my whole career without a helmet. i'm just gonna keep playing without a helmet um so all you know all those little things about sports and and history uh, i've always grown up with and appreciated and um um the fact that in particular usa doesn't really have a lot of matches to access in terms of video footage or television footage that they, they just never been broadcast because they haven't been at that standard that would demand it. Um, what becomes more fascinating and for me inquisitive about us cricket history in particular is uh, it, it's place in history. 
and the fact that, yeah, they did have the first international match 33 years before the Ashes. And um, and then that makes you wonder, well, if they were playing international cricket before Australia and England, where did it go wrong? Why are they not a test country? Um, yeah. You know, they had some pretty amazing players at that point in time. There was a strong cricket culture in America. Um, why isn't there a strong cricket culture in America 160 years later? <laughs> like there is in Australia and England or South Africa, the West Indies. Um, and that, that for me is, has been very fascinating to, to access and observe. And, and there's some incredible pieces of, of history that can be accessed in Philadelphia. Um, whether it's the facilities, Marion Cricket Club, Philadelphia Cricket Club, um, or the C.C. Morris Library on the campus of Haverford College, where they've got so many um, cricket artifacts. And people from around the world come to visit the C.C. Morris Library because it's it's quite an incredible um, source of, of history. But even, you know, you go to other places. You, on my time since um, 2005, coming back to Australia and going around England and other places, you can find places where they've got stuff to do with american cricket history and and visits and um this past summer i, I spent some time in old trafford and in the the library that's um lancashire cricket their property and, and they've got all sorts of uh stuff about american cricket tours to england and specifically to lancashire and um it's it's quite fascinating reading uh stuff that was written in the 1900s about the American touring sides and, and um, I, I love all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Same here, Peter. I couldn't agree more. The history of the game is a wonderful subject and we've done a few episodes on the history of the game on the podcast because um, you can learn so much from, from the history of the, of the game. Um, what's your cricket experience like in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of playing um, cricket yourself? <laughs> can you tell us a bit, bit about that? Yeah, and now this is probably the um, part that is the greatest source of frustration for me in that cricket culture is very peculiar yeah. in a lot of ways, but this is one of them. And when people are introduced to other sports, there's always great source of encouragement and encouragement to fail so that you can learn from your mistakes see what you've done wrong and improve and continue to grow your love of this sport so if you know if, if somebody's playing soccer or or american football for the first time or ice hockey you know one of the most basic things about ice hockey learning to skate uh, it's an incredibly difficult thing but oh you fall on your ass you get up you, you get going again you fall down again you get up um you keep going people hey come on fall down that, that's part of learning to play ice like learning to fall properly learning to fall in a way that you're not going to injure yourself getting your body in position that you know you're going to fall you know you're going to get knocked down but learning to coordinate your body so that you land on a, a fleshy part you're not going to get a broken wrist or you're not going to crack your skull or, or whatever but they encourage it hey come on these are things that everybody goes through 
Um, if you if you're learning to throw a baseball or learning to catch a baseball for the first time, you know, you you, you might get hit in the face. <laughs> you might get hit in the balls. You might you might get hit in plenty of other places that are not comfortable or might produce an injury. But hey, it's the only way you're gonna learn. This is how you yeah. catch. This is how you throw. This is how you hold the glove. Whatever. This is how you swing a bat. Try, fail. That's okay. As long as you're having fun, keep going. Cricket is perhaps one of the few, if only, sports where there's this obsession by the people who play it that you will not be offered an opportunity to play unless they think you are a master and you've learned all the ins and outs before joining a club match. And this is not an international match. We're not talking about playing for Australia, playing for USA, playing in an international match. Playing in a club match for the first time. We will not let you take the field in a club match unless you have a textbook technique with a high elbow and straight bat and... Uh, unless you know the LBW law and unless you know how to count to six, very important life skill, counting to six, yeah. unless you know how to count to six, we can't let you play. We're not going to let you play because cricket is a very serious game and only very oh. serious people can play cricket. Um, and and so that has been my um, initiation into playing cricket is that when I um, came back from Australia, the earliest, the, the very, very first, first experience I had playing cricket was me and three of my American friends at Macquarie University Village. After the Ashes ended in 2005, we went to a Rebel sports shop in Sydney and we bought like a starter set of a bat and stumps and whatever. And we just went into the local park that was adjacent to Macquarie. And we we didn't know what the hell we were doing, but we just set up the stumps and we pretended, you know, it was, you know, like you you grow up in America and you, you know, you're in the backyard and hey, I'm you know, I'm I'm Phil Sims or I'm Peyton Manning or I'm you know, I'm I'm Eli Manning or you know, I'm, I'm gonna throw the winning touchdown and I'm I'm Michael Jordan and you know, there's five seconds left. I'm in my driveway on the backboard and Michael Jordan, three, two, one, and I'm hitting the winning shot, and yeah, ah, the crowd goes up. What were we doing? We're in the park and I'm I'm Warney. I'm uh, and the guy batting. I'm Ricky Ponting, and you know we're all pretending to be the Australians, and um, yeah. we were having fun. We you know we 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 were all throwing you know chucking whatever. We couldn't bowl with a straight yeah. arm. Park. But the point is, we were having fun, and um, we thought we knew what we were doing. And then this like ten year old kid came by, and, and he's like, "Hey, you know, can I play with you guys?" And and then he humiliated all of us by showing us how to actually play <laughs> cricket. Um, but you know, we were having fun, and. Um, then I get back to the U S and I'm trying to, like I said, I'm Googling all these places, trying to join a club, whatever. And I find out there's an Omaha cricket club and I reach out to try and join. And the first conversation I had with it was with this guy named Bhaskar Krishna who went on to, he's become one of my best friends in life. But at the time, this is my first conversation with him and I call him up and I say, I got your number. I'm interested in joining Omaha cricket. And he goes, uh, 
well, have you ever played cricket before? And I said, oh, I, I was messing around in, in Australia in the parks, whatever, during my semester abroad. But other than that, no, I've not played a, a formal organized game. And he goes, um, I, and I, but I tell him, I say, I've played sports my entire life. I'm a decent athlete. Um, yeah, I, I grew up playing baseball and ice hockey and whatever the hell else. And, oh, but you not played cricket. He says, oh, yeah. Well, he says, we got a match on Saturday. This is on like Wednesday or Thursday. We got a match on Saturday. You can come and watch and see what it's like to play cricket. And then after watching us, you know, maybe you can come to a practice session and, you know, we'll have a look at you and we'll, we'll think about whether it's right for you to join the club or not. And uh, he, he made it out to be like very serious stuff. You know, this is not. Yeah. We don't let people who have never played before come just come join the club. And then, sure enough, as as happens in cricket, I'm sure, Jack, that you, you've experienced this at some point in time. Uh, yeah. Friday night phone call at 10 p.m. Peter, we've had a couple of people drop out. Yeah. Do you still want to play? <laughs> then, then all of a sudden it's – Cricket isn't that serious after all. It's, oh, Jesus. Yeah. You know, we've had a couple guys, the usual dropouts. Uh, uh, oh, geez, we're struggling for, for a, a warm body. Hey, come on, please. So I'm, I'm like jumping out of my seat. Oh, my God, I'm going to get a chance to play. I said, when, you know, when's the match start? He goes, um, you know, be there for 8 a.m. We're, we're going to start at 9. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't sleep all night. I was, I was so excited. I'm shadow batting in the mirror and doing, you know, all this stuff. I'm. Uh, I've got my whites. I bought whites in Australia. So, cause again, I knew I probably wouldn't be able to find cricket equipment yeah. in America. So I made sure to buy things before I left Australia. Yeah. Okay. So I had, a, I had whites. I had a set of gray nickels, whites, and I had a floppy hat, uh, gray nickels, floppy hat. And, uh, um, I, yeah, I, I made sure I went to Greg Chapel cricket center. That's where I got my equipment before I left Australia. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know if they still exist. I hope they do. I'm, I'm assuming they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. Still going. Still going strong. So I uh, went to Greg, Greg Chapel Cricket Center, got my stuff. And um, I drove to the cricket ground. I, I went on Google Maps, made sure to drive to the cricket ground the night before so I didn't get yep. lost anywhere. This, I made sure it actually existed. Yep. And, and NP Dodge Park was the place in North Omaha. And, um, yeah, it was, it was and, uh, you know, I guess you could call it a cricket ground. <laughs> it was a place. It was a place where they played cricket. Let's just say that. And yeah. uh, so I'm jumping out. I can't sleep. I think I stayed up until like five or six a.m. Just thinking, oh, can't wait to play cricket. Finally, fell asleep for a few hours. Sent my alarm. Woke up for seven thirty. Get to the ground for eight a.m. So said match is going to start at nine. Get to the ground for eight a.m. And I'm the first person there. And I'm thinking, has the match been canceled? Um, you know, did I did I come to the right place? Do I have the right? I'm, I, I wait there for 15 minutes. Still nobody. I get in my car and I'm about to leave. And Bosker finally rolls in. And I introduce myself. And I say, hey, you know. Is the match still on? He says, oh, yeah, the match is still on. I said, well, where is everybody? He's like, oh, you know, I'll get here. We didn't wind up starting until 11 a.m. Uh, <laughs> that, that's how ultra serious this very important club cricket match was that they weren't sure I would be allowed to play in because cricket is an ultra yeah. serious sport. 
especially club cricket. <laughs> and um, my reward for being the first person there and, and you know, um, being extremely eager to, to play was my reward was coming in at number 10, I think it was. They didn't want me to come in at number 11 because it was an insurance policy just in case, you know, I got out quickly or whatever. Um, but, like, I, I, I think I scored two. I had one scoring shot, I remember. I was a straight drive back down the ground. And then I got out. I was bowled by a Yorker a couple of balls later. And um, But I think they were shocked that I could lay bat on ball. And they, they were, and especially there was a straight drive. I wasn't trying to yeah. hit it like a baseball or whatever nonsense people mm. say. And then um, you know, I told them, hey, I can field. Like, put me anywhere, I'll, I'll field. And they're like, all right, we'll see what you So they put me at square leg. I think it was like the seventh or eighth over the of uh, the chase. It's this uh, guy flicks like a full delivery off his legs, low to me, carries about like shin height. I take it, I catch it, I fling it up in the air. I go nuts, thinking like, "Oh, this is what you're supposed to do when you celebrate a catch." And everybody just stood and stared at me for a good three, four seconds. <laughs> Didn't say anything, and then finally they're like, "Oh yeah!" I was like, "Holy shit!" This guy actually caught the ball. Uh, hey, maybe we can let him play after all. And um, uh, that was my first match. But but it, it, over the course of the summer, it was a struggle to get opportunities because there was there was an internal battle at the club, and this is not the first place I've experienced this, where there were forward-thinking people like Bosker and a couple others at the club who were like, hey, we keep talking on stop about, hey, we want to grow the game to mainstream Americans and we want these people to get opportunities and encourage them to play. Well, here's one in the flesh. He's shown up. He's eager. He knows all the laws. He knows that they are laws and not rules. Um, and he, he comes and shows up first every training session and does everything else we ask him, whereas half the other guys at the club are complete bums and are, you know, aren't interested in doing anything in the voluntary aspects of the club and whatnot. He, you know, how are we encouraging this guy by sending him to bat at 10 and 11 every match? You know, is that really the way to encourage him to, to want to keep playing and yeah. um, be a part of our club? Like this is, this is not um, the right way or is it the right way to go about things? And, and this, there were, there's, there was this huge internal battle with the club philosophically where I became kind of a lightning rod in terms of like, should I earn my way through improving myself as somebody who's just playing a, a season of club cricket for the very first time? Um, and should all these guys who've been playing cricket all their lives continue to, to play ahead of me? Or, you know, am I ever actually going to learn properly if I don't get a chance to be exposed in a proper way? And m meaning bad higher up the order, you know, Knowing full well that I probably will fail, but at least I'll learn, improve, progress, uh, adapt. And um, so over the course of the season, I started to progressively get a few more opportunities. And then in the final match of the season, it I, I was able to bowl for the first time. Um, and um, it took me a good four or five months to learn how to bowl properly without bending my elbow. And so I, that was completely understandable. I, I, I had no issues with, with them not having me bowl at all. But, um, you know, after a certain point in time, 
I would, I would probably say in like June, July, I could bowl properly. And I was getting people out in the nets. And I'm thinking, well, I'm getting a lot of people out in the nets with my my, my offspin. Why am I not getting opportunities to bowl in a match? And it was all, you know, he's, oh, well, these people are just attacking because he sucks. And he's just, you know, he's just getting lucky. And, you know, he's getting people out of the nets because they're just being aggressive because they want to smash him. And then they're just goofing up yeah. at times. Yeah. But I kept on taking wickets in the nets, and and Bosker and um, some of the other guys were like, you know, got to give him a shot at some point. This is what's what's there to lose. Every every other guy bowls junk and filth. Like, come on. <laughs> um, and we don't make any complaints about them saying they shouldn't be allowed to bowl. So um, final match of the season, they give me the ball, and um, I bowl. I come in, and I almost was called for no ball. On my first delivery, because I didn't declare my action, I didn't know that you had to do this. Because again, you watch on TV, yeah, and you don't hear them say, you know, tell the umpire, umpire, right arm around the wicket, whatever. All right, yeah. uh, and so I'm about to bowl, and I'd never done this in a match, and I'd obviously never paid attention to like when my teammates had done this. Uh, every time they come on to bowl. And so I'm about to bowl, and, and like Shrini, this guy Shrini stops me and says, Peter, did you tell the umpire what you're about to do? And I'm like, why would I tell the umpire what I'm about to do? Like, that's stupid. Uh, like, it's supposed to be a surprise what I'm about to do. They're like, no, 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 you need to tell them, like, you're coming over the wicket, around the wicket, like, it's part of the rules. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, right arm over the wicket. And then he says, all right, right arm over the wicket, bowler coming around. So um, I let my first delivery go. It's this like grenade. I, I I toss up this lollipop off spinner and it's just floating, floating. And this guy, his eyes light up. He wants to smash me out of NP Dodge Park and he comes running down the wicket and um, misses. And the ball just went over off some, but bounced. It was a nice flight of delivery, just went over off some. And I turned my back, oh, because I thought, oh my God, I almost just nearly bolting on my first delivery. Oh. Turn my back, and then I hear the sums and the bales break. Yeah, and then I look, and and the leg umpire has given the guy out stumped, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, Jesus Christ, I just took a wicket with my first ball in cricket, and I didn't even get to see it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. turned my head in agony that oh, I've just missed bowling this guy, and re without realizing, oh, he could also be out stumped. So, um, and then I took two more wickets that day, and that. That was huge because then over the course of the winter, the like then the players at the club started to buy in. And then the next, my second season, then I was getting genuine opportunities. I was batting in the middle order a lot of times. I opened the, the batting a few times. I was bowling a full quota of overs, most matches. Yep. Um, taking a lot of wickets and um, and then doing my, my fielding wherever I was uh, fielding. But um, it took people at the club an awful long time to buy in that a I should be given any opportunities and, and B that I would be capable with those opportunities. And, and that has been a struggle um, everywhere I've gone. So, you know, I was in Nebraska until I graduated. Once I graduated Creighton, I left and whether it's playing club cricket in New Jersey, playing club cricket in England, playing club cricket elsewhere, 
um, at times it, it's a struggle to get people to buy into the concept that, oh, an American can play cricket and, you know, yeah. they're not going to be a spaz and um, they actually have a, a coordinated uh, body and some semblance of <laughs> yeah. athletic skills. And um, ironically, probably the places where people have been most encouraging is actually in England. When I played club cricket in England, the people there have been very warm and receptive and they just judge you on your merit. And if you're good enough, they don't give a shit where you're from. You could be from America. You could be from Namibia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Australia. Hey, if you can play, you can play. If you can't, you can't. Um, we'll pick you. And, and even if, and I've seen it with other guys, even if, even if you're not that good, Hey, if you love cricket, we'll you come play. You know, come play in the second 11, come play in the third 11. And, but we'll find a spot for you is, is the point. Whereas in America, um, ironically, you know, the place where I'm, I'm born and raised, that's where I, I found opportunities most difficult to come by. And, and part of that is as a consequence of the fact that contrary to England or Australia or some other places, you don't have a genuine club c culture. Now, I said, like yeah. I said, if you're, if you're not that good, there's a second 11 or a third 11 or a fourth 11. They'll find a place for you, but they want they want you to play and they want you to enjoy the experience and hang around and be part of the whole club atmosphere. America's not like that. You have you have what are called clubs, but in reality, it's just a team of guys who are organized and, and show up together on the weekend. And these clubs in America are designed to never grow beyond 14 or 15 members because the guys who are in the club, they don't want their spot jeopardized. Competition is not to be encouraged for spots. Okay. And they want a guaranteed opportunity on the weekend. So they figure three or four guys are always going to be unavailable. And as long as the membership is kept around 14 or 15, that means everybody's always going to, everybody who wants to play on the weekend is going to get to play. And um, it's all about protecting your spot and looking out for yourself. And God forbid somebody comes along and enhances the quality of the club by generating healthy competition for spots within the club, because dear Lord, that might mean that your spots under threat and we, we can't let that happen. Um, and you know, the concept of growing the membership to 25 or 30 so that you can start a second 11 at the club. I don't know. That's that's like way over their heads. You know, we can't we can't do that. Um, and it's it's quite sad because it stunts opportunities for genuine development and encouraging people to play and take up the game. And instead, it it, it remains. Uh, I'm looking out for me. It's you know, it's it's literally a case of what, what you hear about. You know, I I brought my bat and I brought my ball, so I'm gonna I'm gonna bat and I'm gonna uh, play. I'll open the batting, and you know, when I get out, it's time for me to go home. And you would see that in Omaha, and I've seen in other places where literally, yeah. somebody would show up, open the batting, and in the chase, you know, they would prefer they would prefer to to bat second, so that they could open the batting. And as soon as they get out, they could F off home and uh, leave the rest of us. You know, there would be matches where by the time the match ended, there were only five or six guys left because the other five guys had decided, oh, I don't want to stick around for the end of the game. I'm going to I got better things to do with my time. I'm going to go home. So they wouldn't even, you know, the simple courtesy of and respect of sticking around to shake hands with the other team wouldn't happen. 
and you know, let alone the, the the respect for your teammates who are batting at seven, eight, nine, ten. They're like, I don't know, I don't have time to watch you guys. Um, and to me, uh, that was probably the, one of the most infuriating things about my initial experiences is that the, just the simple lack of respect for your own teammates, let alone the other side. Um, but but guys who um, their idea of being part of a team wasn't really to be part of a team. It was look out for yourself, look out for number one. And um, once you've gotten to do what you want to do, well, then screw everybody else and um, they can fend for themselves. And so in that way, um, cricket culture in the U.S. is is very unhealthy. It's not robust. People are not encouraged to participate, first and foremost. Um, again, to this day, there continues to be what, what I experienced. I've, I've observed it plenty of times where you know, somebody shows up, they want to play, they're new, they're raw, but they're just enthusiastic. Um, they want to contribute to the sport, whether it's playing or scoring or volunteering in some other capacity. And they're really discouraged from coming back because it's a case of, oh, no, you know, you're not uh, you're not Bradman. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're not Sachin. Or you're no not... one could be Bradman. Yeah, well, well, it's a great sin to, to not even come close, Jack, uh, apparently in the U.S. And, um, you know, it's um, how on earth can you grow the sport that way? Yeah. If that's the attitude and that's the mentality that it permeates throughout the, the community, at, whether at a local level or regional level or national level. And you see that quite often in the U.S. And until that changes, it's always going to be uh, an uphill battle for the sport to grow because the if you look at the, the playing numbers in the U.S., cricket is unique in the standpoint that, um, you know, the the 99 percent of the playing base are adults. No other sport is like that in the U.S., and I don't think any other sport is like that anywhere else in the world. Where, um, you know, the emphasis on grassroots is is virtually non-existent, or if it is, it's it's misguided and misplaced. I mean, literally, baseball. You know, you look at baseball, football, basketball, ice hockey, whatever. Ninety-nine know, percent of the, the people playing those sports in the U.S. are under the age of eighteen. And once you once you get to university, if you're not good enough to get a scholarship and turn professional, like you move on with your life, <laughs> you do other things. You know, yeah. it, it's it's seen as almost sad or pathetic um, to be trying to be a a 30 year old playing baseball, club baseball or, or club you know club American football. Like nobody does that. It's ridiculous. Um, they might throw the football around like casually in the backyard or something, but they don't play like competitive organized matches. Um, whereas cricket, nine, you know, instead of having 99% of the playing base in the U S be under the age of 18, it's over the age of 18. And, um, that's not healthy. And, and it, it again, it, it highlights the fact that there's not really an emphasis on genuine grassroots development. People talk about grassroots in the U S and, and grassroots in the U S essentially is a bunch of 30 and 40 and 50 year old guys taking up park space, not, not cricket space they take up a park space so they'll take up a baseball field or a soccer you know whatever open green space and they'll try and make it a de facto cricket field and um it's a it's not a very 
idealistic cricket experience by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and and until that changes, where more encouragement is made in investing and and prioritizing youth, like you see in other sports, it's going to be difficult for the sport um, to grow as a whole. And, and you know, encouraging new people of any kind. You know, one of the other things that, that cricket struggles with in the U.S. engaging with females. You you look at all the other sports, whether it's basketball, soccer, you know, the, the highest participation sport in America is um, girls' youth soccer. Okay. And, and part of that is because they've, they, girls and females have had very few opportunities to participate in other sports. They've had access limited. So when soccer came around and they were encouraged to play it, they jumped at it. So, you know, girls' youth soccer, girls' basketball are huge. In the U.S., you've got more, you know, millions, literally millions of girls um, playing two million, three million girls, I think, is the, is the data that, that's uh, been captured playing those sports. Um, cricket in the U.S. is a major problem culturally and socially where females are not encouraged. You know, at, at, at the most recent AGM, I think the numbers were 300 something, 380, 390, maybe it was 420 um, females of any age. Nationwide are playing cricket when you've got 30, 40, 50,000 men or male players playing cricket. That's a huge yep. disparity and imbalance that needs to be addressed. And again, it highlights um, systemic issues in the U.S. where new players are not encouraged to take up the sport. Um, it's, it's confined mostly to men, adult males. Youth are not encouraged. Women are not encouraged. Um, and until those things change where it becomes more like other sports approach to development. Cricket is, is going to struggle in the US and, and that, that, that has nothing to do with the laws or the rules of cricket or, or how complicated or how simple the sport is. Yeah. Um, cricket doesn't struggle for those reasons. Cricket struggles because the administrators in charge in the U S don't take a serious approach to prioritizing the things that other sports prioritize that allow them to be successful in, in growing and sustaining their sport. And instead, it, it's more often selfish uh, objectives that are targeted that are just self-serving. Yeah, absolutely. Um, couldn't agree more there, Peter. And, and um, it was fascinating listening to your cricketing journey and going through that and a little bit about US cricket, which we'll talk about a bit later on in this interview. But it, has really set the tone for this interview to talk about associate cricket as we progress through this interview. Um, so I thought, Peter, to to start this interview on associate cricket, let's talk about the history of associate cricket because, as we discussed before, the history of the game is a great way to learn about the game more and appreciate where the game has come from. And the history of associate cricket, how the whole concept became a thing, is quite interesting. Um, so, Peter, give us a brief overview um, on the history of associate cricket, if you can, for us, about how the whole thing became what it is today. Well, I mean, if, if you look back at the, you know, the broad history, yeah, USA and Canada go back to 1844. You've got a country like Argentina that goes back to the, the 1800s as well. Um, you know, you've cricket in Scotland, cricket in Ireland, it's got a hundred plus year history. Uh, you've, you've got plenty of other places where there's there's evidence of, of cricket going back 100 plus years but in the modern era the you know the associate game essentially began 
1965 when the ICC admitted the first couple of associate members, and I believe it was USA, Fiji, and I can't remember if it was Netherlands or somebody else. Um, but then that progressed to the World Cup in, in 75 and 79 where you had the ICC trophy. And that is now known as the World Cup qualifier. But it, when it first began, it was the ICC trophy. And it, it was, uh, you know, the Associate World Cup, colloquially, I guess, you, you is, is what it was known as. And um, you would have countries like Sri Lanka, People forget they were an associate country at one point in time, Zimbabwe, an associate country at one point in time, and USA, um, and other countries like, again, Fiji, Netherlands. Um, you would have you know, Kenya, Malaysia, Bangladesh, uh, you know, all these countries. And, and that event would vary at times. It could be a, a 20 team event it could be an 18 team event um it, it currently is a 10 team event but it, when it was first happening in in the late 70s and and throughout the 80s in england before it started to be rotated around to host countries you would have around 20 teams there and um that's that's kind of um how modern associate cricket has has unfolded it's sprouted out from there and what's fascinating for me from an american perspective is seeing all these countries that were kind of on a level footing with usa yeah who have, have left usa in the dust and again it, it further highlights the structural issues the administrative issues that have have been um really poor for usa and, and how misguided they've been you know you take a look at you know whether it's papua new guinea who were on level footing with USA for quite a long time, you know, Sri Lanka, a Zimbabwe, a, a Bangladesh, you know, Bangladesh, I have to go back and look. I don't think they started competing at the ICC trophy until like the late eighties, early nineties. Um, you know, and Afghanistan, Afghanistan didn't com compete at, at the quote ICC trophy slash world cup qualifier until 2009. And on their first go, they, they got ODI status c competing in the ICC trophy. If you look at, you know, Ireland and Scotland, they were not um, ICC classified members. You know, they had history in both countries going back 100 years, but Scotland wasn't its own competing country in the ICC kind of tournament sense until um, the mid-90s. And Ireland... Uh, similarly, and you, you know, you look at one of the things I love looking at is you know the 2001 ICC Trophy in Canada. USA beat Ireland by six wickets in that match, and that was an Ireland team that had the Joyce brothers, Dom and Ed Joyce, and in addition to uh, another couple of players who I believe would would go on to be part of the 2007 World Cup squad. USA beat them quite easily. I think they won by six wickets with like five or six overs to spare. Um, and yet, you know, six years later, you, Ireland's in the world cup and, you know, beat Pakistan and, and the rest is history. Nepal, same thing. Nepal is a country for a long time, didn't exist in terms of the ICC, um, tournament sense. And they, in many ways, sped past USA. There's so many examples of countries that, um, 
we're not competing in ICC events. Uh, when the ICC trophy first began in, in, in the late 70s, and USA was there, and USA was quite competitive in those IC Trophy events, but they never actually were able to to move forward. And instead, they just they just kind of have been stuck in neutral for many many years. Um, and it's only been in recent times that they've been competitive enough to get some positive results. But again, the way USA cricket is structured. It's not designed for long-term sustainable success. They've been able to be competitive in a sense through the luck of the immigration lottery is, is how I describe it. I mean, the, the strength or weakness of American cricket for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years has basically been determined by where immigrants decide to migrate you have a case of, you know, for example, the Donaram brothers, Sunil and Sudesh Donaram. Okay, both Guyanese first-class cricketers. One played for Canada and one played for USA purely because one was able to get a job in the USA through a work visa, and the other one was able to get a job in a work visa to go to Canada. That's that's a very arbitrary reason why why you know one would go to one country and one would go to the other. Um, that's not organic development. USA's yep. grassroots strategy has basically been to wait for the grassroots development of India, Pakistan, Jamaica, Guyana, Sri Lanka, Barbados to mature. And then once those grassroots have grown, then they tear those roots out and then we try to replant them in New York or Florida or Texas or California. That's not a strategy for long-term sustainability and um but that's what usa has always done so so the, the fact that usa has now been semi-competitive if you will respectable enough to to get back to a world cup qualifier in zimbabwe when they hadn't been since 2005 you know they had been in every icc trophy slash world cup qualifier from 79 until 2005 and um then there was you know an 18 year gap um they got back to the one in zimbabwe this past year uh, and they've been to a couple t20 world cup qualifiers but that i would argue is purely a function of the fact that they've lucked out with some decent quality players who were raised in india went through the indian development system went through the pakistan development system went through the barbados development system those guys decided to come to the u.s it hasn't been as a consequence of anything that usa administrators have done to cultivate talent organically and until that changes until until you get players raised in new jersey developed in new jersey developed in california developed in texas developed in florida who are quality players and their first choice USA players. And those first choice USA players are on the same level as first choice West Indies players or first choice <coughs> England players, excuse me, first choice Australian players, then USA will be able to be competitive. At the moment, what USA administrators are asking is they're asking second choice, third choice, fourth choice Indian players, Pakistan players, South African players to become first choice American players. Well, if, if you're asking a, th a third choice South African or fourth choice Indian player to 
beat the first choice Indian players, that's never going to happen. That's just simple logic that you're never going to succeed. Um, and, and there's a, a kind of a misconstrued notion that, that there's um, it's a, it's, it's an ethnic issue, which it's, that's incorrect. There's a subtle difference between ethnic and cultural issues when it comes to this topic. Okay. You talk to people around the U S and the cricket scene and there's, there is a, a, a divide in terms of you, you talk to parents, you talk to other people, you talk to players, coaches, whatever. A lot of the coaches are Indian, ethnically Indian. Okay. Who are, who are coaching development. They're ethnically Jamaican, whatever. Okay. The players, a lot of the players are ethnically Indian, you know, they're second generation, third generation Indian kids. Okay. Pakistani kids, uh, Pakistani American, Indian American kids. Okay. There is a very subtle, but very distinct difference between a kid, an Indian American kid, whose last name is Patel, was born and raised in New Jersey, versus a, a Patel who's from Gujarat, in India. What you often find is that they don't necessarily get along. There's, there's a, I don't want to know if I want to call it envy or jealousy or, or just um, resentment, but the families of players who were born and raised in the U S they quite oftentimes feel that players who migrate from another country, they feel that those guys are people who should not be getting opportunities to play for the U S they feel that those opportunities should go to the, the second and third generation American kids, you know, and that's the difference between the culture versus ethnicity dispute that happens in American cricket. You talk to people and, and they want to see a Sai Mukamala from New Jersey succeed. They want to see a Rahul Jarawala from California succeed. Okay. They want to see a Steven Taylor from Florida succeed. Um, you know, Steven Taylor is the son of Jamaican parents, Jamaican immigrants, Sai Mukamala. His parents are Indian. Rahul Jarawala is Indian family. Sanjay Krishnamurti, uh, his dad is Indian. His, his mom is American. Okay. Um, you, you, you look at other kids. You, you Superficially, what, pe what people see externally, people from the outside, and this is something that frustrates me and frustrates a lot of other people, and you see it with the, with the U.S. women's team as well. The U.S. women's team has done a fit. They're one of the, the few shining um, spots that has really done a great job in terms of commitment to genuine development where a lot of the, the women in the, in the U S women's team now, uh, the genuine majority are American players born and raised American players. You've got an Anika Kalan who is from Northern California and she's been featured in the ICC marketing campaign for the T20 world cup. That's happening in the USA next year. She's been, uh, there's been an, in, um, video campaign that has been on Instagram and social media that the ICC is run. And Anika Kalan is the star of that campaign. American girl. Okay. Born and raised in Northern California. You've got, um, you know, players like Chaitanya Reddy Pagi Diallo is from Southern California, born and raised. You, you've got, um, an Aditi Chidasima from born and raised in New Jersey, Adisha Dingra born and raised in New Jersey. These are all girls who are second generation Indian Americans. Okay. But what happens superficially, I'll never forget. There was, a a graphic that was put out when the USA women's under 19 team qualified and went to the under 19 world cup in South Africa in January. And it got put online 
And they were mocked and ridiculed mercilessly, almost entirely by people from India. It was all Indian cricket fans who said, ah, oh, this is just the Indian B team, or this is the India C team, or this these aren't real Americans. Um, and the players were quite upset with that. And, and it was coming from ostensibly people who a lot of external um, observers would, would classify as, oh, that's the Indian community. That's their own community. And again, it just highlighted the difference where you've got players. I'm somebody who is very much an auditory observer and learner. Okay. If you talk to these players, you can pick out in an instant by their accent, all, all these girls are American. You, you could not mistake them for anything but being American by the way they talk. And yet so, so often the cricket community bases a lot of their observations on, on visual observations rather than auditory observations. So the, the superficially they'll see, oh, all these girls, you've got 13 brown girls. Oh, they're all Indian. The U.S. team, oh, it's the Indian B team. Um, when these are these are the genuine American cricket players who should be supported. And again, it, it, it hi highlights the kind of, subtle um issues that go on in the cricket community in the u.s and um how other people outside the u.s view and and treat the american cricket community where they say oh well this is this is just a bunch of indian people in some ways u.s administrators are at fault for that because on the men's side they they really struggle to promote the simon kamalas and the rahul jarawals the world they would if if you if you had blind selection battle between player A and player B, and player A's stats are identical to player B's stats. And then they say, well, player A played first-class cricket in India, and player B is somebody who is, is born and raised in, in New Jersey. They could both be named Patel, okay? But U.S. selectors, nine, 99 times out of 100, We'll pick player A because, oh, he played first-class cricket in India. So he must be better than what we've got locally. And player B never gets an opportunity. And again, that stunts development discourages players from sticking with the game. They might they might play with the game up to a certain point. But after a certain point in time, they realize, I've got no shot being weighed up against the guys who continue to come from India. Um to to come participate in the u.s cricket system well what's the point of me playing why am i even bothering i'll just go yeah. study on my mba i'll study on my master's i'll focus on making money and i won't have to deal with this nonsense and and you know cricket has already suffered from that and lost players that you look at you look at um you know somebody like a karen, karen patel karen patel played us under 19 cricket for um America. He was also a, a high-level baseball prospect. Well, he decided he, he could see the writing on the wall. His dad played for the USA on the cricket team, but um, he said, you know what? Baseball looks like it's got more to offer me. He was offered a scholarship to go play at UT San Antonio. He was then drafted in the sixth round or seventh round by the Chicago White Sox. Um, and so if you can't even keep players like that in the system, a kid who whose dad played cricket for USA 
and who at one time was playing cricket for USA, but he's saying, you know what? I can see the writing on the wall. There's probably not much in the future for me cricket-wise. Uh, I'm going to go see what I can do in baseball, and then he, he can make money doing it. Um, yeah. That's a red flag for, for cricket administrators. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I agree with that, what you've said there about that, Peter. And also good to hear your insights on the history of associate cricket as well, how it all started, these tournaments, and how the associate nations are involved in cricket, how that concept was developed. So it was good to hear your thoughts on, on that. Uh, Hi, everyone. Hope you enjoyed part one of our Associate Cricket Series episode with Peter Delapena. I hope you enjoyed hearing Peter and I discuss his cricketing journey and the history of Associate Cricket. Stay tuned for part two of our Associate Cricket Series episode with Peter Delapena.